This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Idea City Podcast. For more information or to watch talks online, go to ideacity.ca or check out the Idea City channel on YouTube. Hello, and welcome to Idea City on the Air. By the end of the next half hour, you'll be inspired and enlightened by the world's biggest ideas, innovations, and breakthroughs as you hear about them in talks from the planet's smartest people. Moses Neimer's three-day annual Idea City conference in Toronto has been called Canada's premier meeting of the minds, and we're glad to have your mind with us. In this episode of Idea City on the Air, we feature a debate on whether or not we could initiate contact with extraterrestrial beings. This debate features astrobiologist and president of METI, Douglas Thakoch, and scientist and author of science fiction, David Brin. Now, let's join Moses as he introduces Douglas to the stage. So now I want to join the fierce debate about whether or not we should try to contact extraterrestrial life or whether we should wait for them to get in touch with us. METI, METI is the proactive system, the system of sending a message to a particular place in the hope that we might alert the alien to our presence. Not everybody thinks that's a good idea. So, arguing for the affirmative is Douglas Bakosh. Douglas, come on out here. Good of you to come. Thank you for having me. And arguing for the negative is David Brin on Skype. How are you? Hello, David. So these are the rules of the engagement. Douglas will argue for the affirmative, 10 minutes. David will have 10 minutes to oppose and rebut, and then we might have a little conversation. Away you go. Thank you very much for the invitation. As Moses said, I'll be arguing for METI, why we should be messaging, but I'd like to do this in a context of a brief history of our attempt to make contact with other civilizations. The world's largest radio telescope uh, is in Arecibo, Puerto Rico. Uh, And in addition to looking at uh, information, radio signals coming in from space, it can also transmit um, radar signals, radio signals uh, used to plot the trajectories of asteroids. That's one of the major purposes for it. Well, in 1974, a symbolic message was transmitted, and you can see it uh, in the upper right-hand corner. It was a very brief message uh, showing some images, scientific information that we hope any extraterrestrials will understand. And it was targeted at a cluster of stars called M13, 25,000 light years away. Well, the general principles, I would argue, are what we should be doing, but we should modify that approach in two fundamental ways. First of all, the 1974 message was a one-off effort, and we should instead be sending repeated messages into space, because when we're searching for signals in SETI, if we see something that looks good once, 
you know, it's not compelling. Science demands replication. And then secondly, we should be transmitting to targets closer to home. So instead of sending a signal to a globular cluster 25,000 years from now, where the earliest we could hear reply back is 50,000 years, we should be transmitting to stars in our own neighborhood, where you know it could still take a decade or two at best, but within a person's lifetime, if you're young enough, you may actually get to test your hypothesis. So we here uh, on Earth have had radio technology for looking at the stars for since the 1930s. And if you plot the development over the last few decades and continue that trend only two or three centuries, we, a civilization that's just gotten a start in this game, will be able to make contact, will be able to detect our own level of leakage radiation out to several hundred light years, in just two or three centuries. So any civilization that has the ability to come to Earth to do us harm can already know we're here. But then you might also say, well, what's the point? If they know we're already here, why bother? Well, I'd like to give you three reasons. The first is what I call the Canadian hypothesis. This is actually from a, a dear friend, uh, the late Alan Tuff, uh, a SETI researcher at the University of Toronto. And we were having dinner one night and he said, you know, Doug, maybe the answer to the Fermi paradox of why they haven't sent us anything is because maybe they're less like Americans and more like Canadians. <laughs> Instead of sending just everything and announcing we're here, and, and that's the Americans, um, that, that instead they're more like Canadians and being more reserved and they're simply waiting for an invitation. <laughs> so maybe that's the explanation. You know, another uh, ties into the challenges that we have of understanding languages here on Earth. And one of the assumptions that has been at the core of SETI is that there's a universal language that we and extraterrestrials will be able to speak. It's the language of math and science. And it's gonna be easy for them to send us the Encyclopedia Galactica because science is like progressing up the side of a mountain. And we've gone up a little ways, but a civilization that's been at this a lot longer than we have has gone up even higher. And so they'll just turn around, look back, and they'll know what to send us that makes sense. Even if that's what science is, a progressively better understanding of the universe, maybe they started up the mountain from a different side, or maybe they're climbing up a different mountain range. And the analogy is their environment is different, their scientific needs are different than ours. And so a civilization that's been around a long time and had a chance to make contact with many other civilizations is in a better position to understand us than we are able to understand them. And then the final possibility I want to mention is simply there's been this implicit idea in SETI that if an extraterrestrial civilization has the technology to communicate, they will altruistically do so. Now, I hope the extraterrestrials are like this bird, putting their wing over us and taking care of us, but I'm not going to count on it. Uh, and so maybe, in fact, the, the way this protocol works for interstellar communication is that the less advanced civilization, the one that has most to gain, is the one that needs to take the initiative. This first half century of doing SETI, we have used a strategy that gives us the possibility of making contact immediately uh, and benefiting ourselves. And you know, that's a strategy that makes a lot of sense. 
for a civilization that is in its technological adolescence. I mean, what better way of characterizing an adolescent civilization than looking out for me right now? But as we think about what we want to be as we move into the next half century and beyond, I would encourage us to think about ways that we can contribute to other civilizations uh, and other future generations of humans. And one way to do that is many. In closing, let me just note that sometimes people talk about interstellar communication as an effort to join the galactic club. The thing I, I always find so strange is that no one ever talks about paying our dues or even submitting an application. And that's what METI does, and it may just be the method that lets us make first contact. Thank you. Coming up after the break. And I don't want to impose upon my children who will know a lot more and be a lot smarter than Doug and me. A phase accompli. Welcome back to Idea City on the Air. Now, let's rejoin the debate on extraterrestrial communication, featuring Douglas Vakoch and David Brin. What's happening is that several of our dear colleagues want to poke at the experiment. And if you've ever really taken any uh, apprenticeship in science, you know that that's really, there's a burden of proof. Uh, on those who want to poke at the experiment when listening is uh, giving us data and it's terribly important. Uh, we are like four-year-olds who have found ourselves suddenly in a um, dark, very strange forest that's quiet, unexpectedly quiet, maybe too quiet, to use a cliché. And uh, to suddenly run around the forest screaming, you who... Um, I would say that there's a certain burden of proof to that. The Fermi paradox is very perplexing, and I've been writing about it for 30 years, and there are about 100 potential explanations. And one thing I've noticed is people tend to leap at one and declare, that's the answer. And that's a sure sign that a scientific field is very immature and has very little data. So I'm all in favor of continuing to collect data. Ten years from now, we will know a lot more about the galactic situation. And perhaps people like Doug will be able to refute some of the fears of the more paranoid people. Contact situations in nature and in history have been fraught with dangers and difficulties. Now, I want to talk about a few of the assertions that are made by the METI guys. Hollywood has taught you that I Love Lucy is seen by everybody. But even the METI guys now admit that it would take um, human technology extrapolated two or three or four hundred years into the future to actually pick up I Love Lucy. Imagine you're at the edges of a lake and you're trying to communicate with a Boy Scout camp across the lake. You could slap on the surface of the lake and hope they have super, 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 super instruments and computers, and they might detect your, your Morse code signal. Or you can take out a laser pointer and aim it at them across the lake. That is actually the scale difference between I Love Lucy and what these guys want to do. Precautions against potential 
dangers are actually done a lot these days. NASA has a planetary protection office that scrubs the missions we're going to land on other worlds to make sure we don't pollute them with um, bad life forms or invasive species, and especially any samples that are brought back. Uh, CERN studied whether or not they might uh, make black holes. The National Academy of Science in the United States um, did a report on geoengineering and how we should take precautions. And of course, AI. Right now, there are serious people investigating the possibilities of how we can develop AI responsibly so that it doesn't Terminator or Matrix, you know, destroy all humans. Look, some of the scenarios in science fiction are lurid, but that doesn't mean that they are perforce automatically. And I don't want to impose upon my children, who will know a lot more and be a lot smarter than Doug and me, a fait accompli. We don't want to impose an Orwellian uh, moratorium forever on beaming into space. I'm perfectly willing to contemplate Medi, but we should do it in a responsible way. And one thing you never hear these guys talk about is due process. Doing this in a scientific way by setting up not just committees, not just conferences to discuss it in which we might invite historians and biologists and all the people who some of the Medi guys have been avoiding because they're sure of their assertions. What could go wrong? But inviting the whole world. Can you imagine a television or web show in which uh, we have um, millions of people participating online in these debates over Medi and SETI? It would be fun. It would be interesting. And I think we'd all come out better able to decide what to do next. Thank you. So, based on what David says, can yeah. I ask you, what's the rush? Why do you feel compelled? Because it's reasonable and rational to say, take a deep breath, check it out a little more. It's so reasonable. What's your rush? You know, I think uh, one, of the, one of the arguments uh, against many has always been, you know, we're, we're not old enough. That put the burden on the older civilization but that's something that you can always say. There's never a point in which you are obviously old enough or capable enough or know enough. You know, you, you could easily have gone back to 15th century Europe and told Columbus, what's the rush? You know, wait until you know more about the world, wait until you have a jet, why work with these ships? You know, the, the ships worked. I think the, the reason um, we should be cautious, and I found myself agreeing with David on so many points. I would not want a message uh, that said, we are uh, going to uh, annihilate your world, you belong to us, or uh, to have a, a, a message that had not involved the same kind of consultation across disciplines that, that David has advocated, uh, and involving a broad-based uh, discussion internationally. My big concern, is that what is holding this back is an unwarranted fear. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of things in this world to be afraid of. We're, we're destroying our environment, uh, we are at war with one another, and it would really be nice to, to take off our list of worries in alien invasion. But I'm sorry, I cannot with good conscience tell you that we're going to be safer if we don't transmit.
So I, I think there, there are a number of areas. You know, D David has been so productive in this discussion because he's highlighted some of the assumptions that we make. I think it's simplistic to say you're pro-SETI and anti-SETI. I think the question is, what, what scenarios are you in favor of and what are you opposed to? I, I think that it's terribly important that we talk about the distant, distinction between message preparation and message analysis, which I've always been in favor of, and using messages to reach out to the public and stir their imagination. This is why I've been involved in the New Horizons message, because I know that it will be aboard that spacecraft and it won't endanger us. All it will do is inspire millions. So I am a moderate about this, and I think that Doug is more of a moderate. You're seeing the moderates of this discussion. But there are some who are saying, what right have you if 50 or 60 of the a majority of the Fermi paradox explanations are actually pretty darn disturbing or nasty. What right have you to commit our grandchildren who will know so much more about this? I, I, I think you uh, were accurate in a way of characterizing Medi as poking. And I think, you know, poke kind of has a pejorative connotation to it. But in reality, that's what science is. Now, astronomy is an observational science. You don't have to poke. But for many scientists, actually being able to do an experiment, manipulate a variable, is doing the true experiment. And so that's what we are advocating. We are advocating taking an active role, but it is critical that we evaluate the risks. I would encourage people to think about what are the risks of targeting planets uh, uh, around stars that are very close to Earth. My question is, uh, do we want to be uh, worried about civilizations um, doing us harm uh, from nearby stars? Because you have to think about the implications of an individual scenario. If the reality is that one of the nearest stars has a civilization that will reply to us or know of our existence, on purely statistical grounds, that means they're everywhere. And what they are just doing is watching us. And the, the motive of Medi is to say, maybe they're watching us, maybe they need the invitation, and then they'll reply. But what that means is that if we succeed by targeting a, f a handful of nearby stars, that means the galaxy is populated. And even the most conservative model of interstellar migration would say, if they want to be here, they could, and they haven't. Yeah, sorry, sorry, Doug, but I just don't buy that. If folks actually read the papers on this, you'll see that there are a lot of S-curves in technology, and there's no, it's an assumption that aliens would build Connecticut-sized, uh, a million Connecticut-sized receivers and hunt everywhere, spend that expense to look for us. But the fundamental thing here is that, uh, you know, you're trying to base everything on assumptions. Carl Sagan said we should let the ad advanced life forms do the heavy lifting. And here's the point. If you, you're saying that within a couple of hundred light years they may know about us and your only rationale for making us a million times brighter is to say, you who hears our signature on our application form, if they already are watching us, then do it on a TV show. As a matter of fact, this will probably be go on the, on the web. I hereby invite these people watching us from 100 light years away to get in so touch thank with you. us. So you've just done, you've just done Medi in, in one particular form. And so 
So I applaud that effort and your other efforts too. And then the question is, and I'm not saying it has to be a million times more powerful, but is there a level above what our normal leakage radiation uh, that you would find acceptable? Is no. that 10 times 100? No. And, and the answer for David is no. All right, gentlemen, a very spirited <laughs> debate. Thank you, David. Thank you. How about, how about we put it to the House? All in favor of the Doug Lacoche position. Show of hands. Yes for Metti. Okay. And against? Oh, I think so. I think that Canadian spirit has won. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Idea City on the Air. Catch Moses Neimer's Idea City Conference live every June in Toronto or on regularly scheduled radio and TV shows throughout the year. And find hundreds of talks online every day at ideacity.ca. For more information about Idea City, find us online at ideacity.ca, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or youtube.com slash ideacity. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.